Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Investment News Podcast. I'm Jeff Benjamin, co-hosting with Bruce Kelly. We are talking today with industry veteran, icon, whatever you want to call it, uh, all-around good guy, Mark Tversion. Uh, spent a lot of time at Pershing, retired from there in 2020, and now is, uh, I think he's just basically giving people advice on uh, how to run their own lives and stuff. But we're going to get into all of that. I want to, I want to first of all, recognize our sponsor, LPL Financial. And uh, Bruce, how are you doing today? Uh, fine and dandy, Jeff. Thank you for asking. Fine and dandy. We That's a that's a good bar to set. Uh, Mark DeBersion, welcome to the program. And how are you doing, sir? I'm doing well, Jeff. Thank you very much. Thanks for the introduction. Uh, I am actually serving on a couple of uh, uh, boards of uh, financial services companies and doing uh, work as an advisor in residence for Ernst & Young. So uh, trying not to be too pedantic and actually trying to be constructive in my current role. That's that's excellent. Good. To, and I knew I know that you are on boards and, and so forth. I I just wasn't I didn't want to narrow put you in too much of a pigeonhole because you uh, you have such vast experience and knowledge and uh, all that good stuff. Well, thank you for being here. Why don't you why don't we start by uh, giving us a little update on uh, what's I guess your version of retirement look like? Well, that's a great question. So uh, I would say that I'm not retired. I'm rewired. Uh, I found that uh, I, I picked the time at the beginning of COVID to uh, exit corporate life. And this caused me to uh, understand that just sitting at home, watching my wife buy bigger pillows, and that put a big threat to my <laughs> life. So I, I thought I better get going doing something. So uh, now, I, uh, as I mentioned, I am serving on a couple of boards. I'm doing uh, occasional consulting and speaking engagements. Uh, but for the most part, I'm enjoying my life through travel, picked up golf again, and, uh, and meeting and developing new friendships, which has been terrific. Okay. Okay. Good stuff. I know Bruce has got questions for you. I've got questions for you. I kind of wanted to start with where I guess you left off as far as most of our coverage goes. Um, you left Pershing. You retired in, in 2020. But it, he goes back farther than that, Jeff. He was with... Mark was with Moss Adams. Yeah, yeah, I know, but I'm I'm starting with this this point right here for a purpose. Um, okay. You you uh, you left Pershing and in, in the uh, your shoes were filled by uh, by Ben Harrison. Yes. And uh, Ben Harrison was recently in the news. Uh, he's now he was sharing that role, co-head of the wealth solutions business with Maura che- Creekmore. Uh, she left uh, Pershing and. December and now it's uh, been all by himself again. I mean, I, you know, I ha- I've had nothing but good experiences with Ben. He's what I like about him. He was kind of like you. He's accessible. He you know he speaks clearly. He seems to be speaking. You know, answers your questions and you know an all around good guy. I mean, his. It, do you have any comments on him? Is is the kind of the the man in charge now over there of of what is one of the top three or the largest three custodians? Yes. Uh, so uh, I've also had nothing but positive experiences with Ben. Uh, in fact, my succession process was fairly rigorous, as you'd imagine. I, I had a number of candidates who I vetted, uh, who I'd bring along. Some I moved along faster, some I moved along slower. And uh, Ben was among the finalists uh, for, the cons- uh, for consideration as my successor. Uh, our executive team went through the evaluation process and decided that he would be the best person for that particular job. 
after I left Pershing uh, under Jim Crowley's leadership as head of the entire company, uh, the decision was to put uh, the broker-dealer clearing and the RAA custody business together from a, a sales and support standpoint. And that's what resulted in the co-heads, I think, across the board in, uh, in, in a variety of ways. Uh, and uh, I think that the idea of Ben emerging into the, the top leadership role of running both parts of the business is just a testament to uh, his wisdom, his knowledge, his approach to people, uh, the confidence that he inspires, uh, which, uh, which just is a, a real a very pleasing sign as somebody who picked a successor and is seeing him flourish. Mm -hmm. What about um, just, you know, I know you're you're uh, you're not really technically in the custody business anymore, but um, you still have to have some some perspective on this uh, Schwab TD consolidation and what do you anticipate that might do to the overall custody business, even though that's been kind of happening for a couple of years now. Yeah, well, you know, clearly Schwab was uh, was the market leader when they. Uh, you know, let, let's think about this. When the, uh, the retail RIA model evolved in the 1980s, uh, you know, the, the 40 Act was what created RIA, but it was mostly an institutional business up until then. So when the retail model emerged, uh, Schwab was a real catalyst for the growth of the industry. And uh, being first to market also meant that they were uh, the market dominators. Uh, and and uh, clearly Fidelity and TD followed right after and then Pershing was a little bit later to the game. I think uh, when we look at uh, what's happening, I, I find it interesting that many people refer to that as a consolidation of custodians. Uh, I look at it more as a consolidation of retail businesses. In fact, uh, if I'm not mistaken, I think more than 50% of Schwab's revenue comes from the retail side of the business, not from the custodial side. And so, uh, so the first thing we have to recognize is that uh, retail being direct to consumer is a far more profitable business than being a custodian. And that the opportunity to establish market share, especially among the mass affluent is huge. And uh, Schwab has one of the best retail financial brands uh, in the country, if not the most prominent. And so uh, I think that's the most significant change there. Uh, However, uh, on the custody side, I think that what's significant is that uh, they have uh, uh, opened up the way in which they approach the business, but they've also created uh, an opening for competitors uh, to differentiate uh, because sometimes people are not uh, impressed by size as much as they are impressed by the community that uh, the firms like a custodian serve. And so this creates opportunity for companies like Pershing and Fidelity and the 20 or so other custodians that are in the marketplace that are trying to get those kinds of clients. Yeah, we, um, we're we going to try and get uh, Ben Harrison on this podcast. Uh, I, I couldn't even get an interview with him this week for uh, his new role, but uh, I guess they're, you know, I'm, he's, I'm sure we'll have him. But uh, I want from your perspective, what kind of opportunities does the Schwab TD consolidation create for Pershing? Well, one of the things that Pershing has been able to do is to distinguish itself as being uh, the only B2B firm in the marketplace. And, uh, and from what I hear from advisors is that 
Uh, on one hand, they like the fact that, uh, that their custodian might have a retail experience that they can deliver to their own clients. On the other, uh, there are some who view that as a threat to their business because uh, it's a competing brand that they have to deal with. So from Pershing's perspective, the opportunity to continue to position themselves as the only B2B provider uh, delivering custody solutions to their market means that there isn't brand competition. You know, you know, I find that is a not so subtle distinction. I mean, and and it it often gets overlooked, but um, it, it it is kind of interesting that Pershing is right up there with among what is now the big three, and they they are B two B. They don't have a retail side of that that business. It's true, and and it, and frankly, it was one of the reasons why. We had such rapid growth to uh, almost a trillion dollars of assets by the time I left uh, of RAA assets. And, and most of those firms were larger enterprises. They weren't smaller practices. So that was the other thing that, that I think uh, uh, Pershing has done well is not think in terms of individual advisors, but think more in terms of advisory businesses and how you construct a service experience around that. That was one of the benefits of being a broker-dealer clearing business because you're always dealing with enterprises, not dealing with individual practitioners. And that orientation is just a slightly different orientation than dealing with consumers, as an example. Bruce Kelly, what do you have for Mr. Tiburton? Hey, Mark. How are you doing? I'm great, Bruce. Thank you. Thanks so much for coming on. We've been talking about this for a little while, right? Yeah, we have. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff knows I like it when things come together, when things gel. Yeah. So I just wanted to give a little more color about your background uh, because you really are, to me, like one of these people, you know, who got in on the ground floor of the RIA business. Maybe not there like some of the old timers in the 1970s when they were creating, you know, the different trade associations that wound up being the FPA. But you were, as a as a consultant with Moss Adams, you were really one of the first significant groups to really kind of take this business uh, seriously. And I, I, and I think 20, 30 years later, that's all kind of been vindicated. Is, is that, am I remembering your history at Moss Adams correctly? Because you had a, a great team over there as well. Uh, you are remembering a part of it correctly, but there, is a, there are some chapters before that that really led to uh, how we entered into the market. Uh, what, right, yeah. Tell us about that, if you would, because I, I, I vaguely remember that. I didn't want to get it garbled up. Sure. Uh, well, ironically, uh, my first uh, job was as a reporter. Uh, I, uh, in fact, I, I wrote and read obituaries on the radio. And so some days I feel I've come full circle, <laughs> uh, but uh, I was recruited to Chicago to write for a company called Investment Dealers Digest, which covered uh, the OTC trading and IPO market. And uh, because of that experience, I was recruited to Portland uh, by an RIA uh, that managed money focused on Northwest stocks. Uh, and this all, was when about? That was 1976. Oh, my goodness. And, uh, and in fact, the, the president of that firm, uh, not, not only did they do uh, investment research uh, focused on Northwest stocks, but they also managed money and they specialized in valuations of closely held businesses. And the hmm. founder of that firm, Shannon Pratt, was in the very first CFP class. And he said to me, <laughs> uh, Mark, he said, 
Uh, one of the things that will drive your career is if you get involved with these financial planners, he said, I think it's going to be a big deal. So I joined the local IAFP, which was the predecessor organization to the FBA. So you really were in on the ground floor. I, I was there when, when uh, before FSI was created because uh, the IAFP had both broker-dealer members and uh, advisory members. Right. So I became president of that chapter and ended up on the national board of IAFP uh, just before it merged uh, to create what is now its current entity. So my history goes a long way back there. So how did that evolve into the consulting business? Well, well this is Adams? so after that, I, I joined management advisory services and became its president, where we were doing training on financial management and valuations of businesses. And, uh, and uh, five years after that, I sold the firm to Moss Adams. And uh, Moss Adams is a large accounting firm. The managing partner of the firm said, Mark, uh, he said, now that you don't have a business to run, uh, there are three things you're going to need to be successful here. One is I want you to declare an industry specialty. Uh, two is I want you to declare uh, a technical specialty. And three, I want you to become famous at both. And so uh, I picked the financial services industry as my industry and management and valuation is my technical specialties. And that's how we got here. And that about was when you were started that all up at Moss Adams and Ernest. When when was that about? Mid 90s, 95. And so then say 2006, 2007, if memory serves, that's when you moved over to Pershing, right? Uh, 2007. Yes. Okay. And in fact, it was before Moss Adams that we created the first benchmarking studies that all the custodians are now using. Uh, in fact, Schwab was our client. They they contracted with us to do the benchmarking we were already doing. They were a sponsor. And then eventually they just took it over and, and ran their own version of it. And I think Investment News has some involvement with that and too, it, right? The one that Investment News has is, is the one that I started in the 1980s. Uh, uh, so it goes back a long way. Market volatility can have a dramatic impact on clients, but this also represents an opportunity. As a wealth management partner, LPL Financial helps advisors and institutions implement more robust financial planning strategies with clients. Dr. Jeffrey Roach, Chief Economist at LPL Research, shares his insights on the markets and how financial professionals can deepen their relationships with clients and help them feel more prepared. I think one of the things uh, it's helpful to think about is, you know, this is this is a long term scenario. It's about having a plan, executing the plan, sticking with the plan, not, you know, trying to change plans midstream, you know, looking about long term, long term opportunities, long term goals. To hear the rest of the conversation and learn more about planning for the year ahead, visit the LPL Financial Newsroom at LPL.com slash newsroom. So I, I love the background. I love the history. Um, this is obviously in your, you know, RIAs and 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 and, and the like are in your in your blood. We spoke when I, we we first spoke about you coming on the podcast. I called you up in the middle of the summer, at the end of the summer, and I was just talking to you about the Alvarium Tiedemann deal. You know, RIAs and should they go public or not, and and you know uh, when is it an appropriate time? What do they have to what do they have to do before they go public and the like? But just, do you have any thoughts on ALTI, the which which listed last week, and that was the Alvarium Tiedemann 
merger that was announced about almost a year and a half ago. And, you know, it's, I guess, all globally, it has about $60 billion in assets. Tiedemann is based here in New York and in Miami, and, and they deal with uh, very wealthy clients. Um, and it seems to me, I just glanced at the trading. It was trading, when it debuted last week, it was trading in the eight, 7 or $8 range. And I think it's back up to the upper nines and 10, 10 bucks a share, which is what this, the SPAC was sold at. Yeah. Originally, I believe. It, Do you have any thoughts on, on, on that listing and maybe what it means for other RIAs that are thinking about going public? Not specifically on that listing, but I do have general uh, perception of uh, professional service firms going public, uh, number one, and number two, uh, what that means uh, for the companies. So my first perception is that uh, if you're going to go public in this business, uh, you really don't want to be a micro cap or uh, ideally not a small cap stock unless there's some promise of you becoming uh, bigger over time. And, right. Uh, and I think that in professional service businesses, that tends to be a challenge uh, for many uh, because now uh, what you have to do is is think about your internal shareholders, the people that you want to become partners, as well as the external shareholders who are passive to a degree, unless you look at an example like InvestNet where uh, your passive investors now are becoming not just active, but aggressive. And, and so it just adds a different dimension to the management of the business uh, that, uh, that sometimes can alter the way in which you do, uh, do your strategy. But the second is whether or not um, uh, you are going public for the purpose of raising money uh, for uh, growth, or you're doing this for a liquidity event. And one of the things that concerns me about uh, some of the uh, companies that are contemplating uh, a capital raise uh, is that they may be using it to pay off their debt, but not necessarily to fund their growth. And so uh, I keep thinking about what are the balance sheet implications of uh, raising money of any type? And, and would debt be a better way to do it? Or is equity solving some other large shareholder problem that you don't have another way in which to solve for. So uh, will I see other companies go public that are in the consolidator space? Yes, probably. But I hope I don't see this until they are much larger in terms of the market cap, where they actually can justify an institutional following, which is going to drive the market price. I think, again, when we spoke over the summer and into the fall, you were more um, of the school that two of these big aggregators are going to combine. Is that correct? My opinion is that uh, it's the inevitability of consolidation of any industry. Uh, so uh, when we look at how um, businesses developed, particularly in the U.S., uh, they often start as fragmented enterprises. Uh, and some leader, some dominator emerges and says, I can aggregate these companies and become one bigger enterprise. And then I can integrate them and then expand them. And so I think we are in the early innings in terms of the uh, aggregation phase. Roughly 30% uh, of the billion dollar plus RIAs are corporate owned today. Uh, so there are many that are not. Uh, the nature of private equity is that within five to seven years, they seek to get out of those investments. And the question is who will be big enough uh, to uh, to acquire their interest when that occurs. Could be another PE firm. 
But I think even more likely it will be a consolidation of consolidators that will be the next wave that we see within within this marketplace. And we've seen this in the United States, as you say, we've seen this before in various industries, right? From like funeral homes and... Funeral homes to termite, you know, Terminex is a great example of a right. company that started that way. Uh, accounting firms is another right. great example. I mean, accounting industry is a great parallel, even the law industry, because they're professional service firms. Uh, there was, uh, in fact, when I joined Moss Adams, we were in the... Uh, we were beginning consolidation of accounting firms. Uh, it just happened that uh, what what my partners and I had was a consulting firm, but uh, they were con- they were consolidating accounting firms, uh, and that's how the, one of the reasons they became so large focused on uh, audit and tax services to closely held businesses. And uh, and what's happened now is that accounting firms ended up merging with other accounting firms, so consolidators uh, merge with other consolidators. The same happened in, in law firms. You can look at the 10 biggest law firms that started as local practices now are international in their nature. Hmm. Right. And this is my last question before we take it back to Jeff uh, for, for now. Are you so is it like these these firms are almost becoming like regional, super regional investment advice firms? In, in many ways, uh, there's a parallel to what happened with independent contractor broker dealers. Uh, in that uh, once you become bigger, you have to introduce command and control uh, into the process. It may not be under a FINRA-type supervision, but there will be some sort of command and control process that exists. And in many cases, the consolidators are fragmented geographically. In some cases, they're even fragmented in terms of the types of practices that they acquired. And so they're going to have to try to find some consistency and uniformity in how they approach things, both by geography and, and by dem, uh, demographics as they as they think about what the next growth phase of the business is. In order to keep it all together, it sounds. Partly to keep it together, but the other part is to achieve uh, brand and critical mass within their markets. Right. Uh, you know, the only firm that I know of that does a really good job of small local practices is Edward Jones, uh, where that's their model. It's almost like a franchise model. And, uh, and so people come and go and, and, and that works. But if you're, if you're acquiring practices that are too big and too small and you do nothing to get to critical mass in those markets, then what you really have, what you really are is a portfolio manager uh, versus uh, an RIA business. And that's, right. that's the danger that you have in creating that model. Right, right. Jeff? Yeah. Hey, um, Mark, I got some questions for you, but uh, first I want to share with our audience uh, uh, um, one of my favorite Mark Tiberian stories. Um, this was at a, a Persian conference a few years ago, and I don't know, I'm sure you remember this because you were, I know you're a Midwest guy, right? Yeah. yeah. And, and you were, inter- you had, you were, you had the honor of interviewing Andrew, Ro- uh, uh, Aaron Rodgers, the uh, Green Bay quarterback, right? Can't forget. And uh, I was sitting right there, sitting right there in the front row. Um, even though I'm a Detroit Lions fan, I've always had a lot of respect for Aaron Rodgers. And uh, and the the funny thing was is it was originally scheduled you were going to interview Serena Williams, but yes. she had some kind of a conflict, scheduling conflict or something. So you got Aaron Rodgers, and and I'm thinking that's a pretty good swap out. But you were as you were doing the intro, Mark, you were saying. Well, we had all these questions prepared for Serena Williams, 
And then at the last minute, we got, you know, Aaron Rodgers. And, and you said, somebody suggested, let's just ask Aaron the same questions we were going to ask Serena Williams. And I mean, to me, that was that was just clever and funny. I don't think you did that. Yeah, I had, I had fun with that because I said, so the first question is, who's your favorite Disney princess? Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was a it was a really cool interview. I mean, one of my favorite lines in there was that you said to Aaron Rodgers, you said you said we have some, you know, it said we're both uh, from, you know, we're both used to live in the Midwest or whatever, but we have something else in common. We both have a quick release. Oh yeah. <laughs> and Aaron Rodgers looked at you like, and you went to fist bump him, and he wouldn't fist bump you on that one. But uh, <laughs> he gave in. He gave in. <laughs> yeah, that was. Uh, but all right, let me let me ask you about um going going back to the custody side a little bit here. Do you think that we'd or actually the RIA side? Do you think we would see the kind of consolidation we're seeing right now without the PE private equity influence, which is relatively new, right, at this level? It's it's probably been in earnest for the last ten years. Obviously, Focus uh, was one of the first ones. Immigrant Bank was uh, early into that process with uh, with uh, let's call it outside capital, even though it was their own capital. Clearly, the capital infusion uh, allowed for uh, larger firms to merge together more quickly, and and it created a strategic framework for growth, uh, for inorganic growth. So uh, it's it's clearly an accelerant, and uh, and I think that that's probably why we're seeing, you know, two hundred and fifty to three hundred deals a year um, uh, of substantial size because there's capital involved. And, and usually there's some combination of debt and equity that is behind these structures. Uh, and oftentimes this, the, the founder of the firm is seeking a liquidity event. So there has to be some substantial payment made to the person who's leaving the company. And uh, I don't know if that could have been accomplished with the typical advisor firm, which for the most part didn't even have a balance sheet. Uh, most, most advisors thought their balance sheet was a cover page and not really something to manage. What do you think about some of this talk we hear from largely from Michael Kitsis a lot about wanting uh, to change the, the, the business relationship that is now has been in place for a long time between RAAs and custodians. Namely, he would like to have completely transparent fees that advisors have to pay for custody. Well, um, I understand the, uh, the desire for full transparency, but it's not a friction point for most advisors. And frankly, the cost of custody relative to the t- cost of advice is insignificant. You know, the, as an example, the, the, the average revenue uh, for a custodian is somewhere between eight and 12 basis points, uh, whereas the average revenue uh, per assets for advice is around 70 to 80 basis points. And so uh, I don't know how transparent advisors are truly in the actual dollars that clients pay for the advice they get, um, and particularly for the advice that might be just managing uh, uh, assets using a passive uh, portfolio strategy. So, uh, I mean, I'm not opposed to the notion of disclosure, but it just seems to be a level of complication that doesn't really add any value to the relationship. Uh, I would say the other part of that is uh, I don't know that the typical client fully understands uh, the nature of the custodial relationship and why the advisor is recommending Schwab or Pershing or Fidelity over 
other and uh, what they're getting from that. Uh, the only time it becomes an issue is when the client feels like they're not getting uh, uh, accurate reports or uh, if there are problems in execution and those sorts of things. Uh, but what's also interesting is most advisors are become somewhat beholden to their custodian because uh, the, the bigger the advisor, the more support that they get from the custodian. And so there is an element of conflict that happens in that case as well. Mm-hmm. And on the topic of fees, when or what do you expect that advisors at the advisor level will ever see the kind of pressure on fees that the rest of the financial services industry has been living through? Fee compression? I'm not sure that uh, I think, you know, there's some ironies in this business. Uh, one is that was that the that the advisory business is the only profession where the client pays for the value they bring rather than the value the advisor brings. And it'd be as if my doctor charged me by the pound. I'd be overpaying in those cases. And, uh, and so, uh, but clients don't put a lot of pressure on that until they get farther up market. Uh, but consistently, we see advisors actually increasing the charges to clients, not decreasing. Uh, and in fact, I think, uh, I think I saw a study last year, the year before, at something like 30% of all RIAs change their pricing, half increase them, half decrease them. Uh, and sometimes they just change the breakpoints where that occurs. So, uh, so pricing becomes an issue when performance becomes an issue. And, uh, and this is one reason why so many advisors are trying to get away from performance as their only measure and thinking about how they fulfill the client experience in different ways through planning, through advice, through negotiation, through bill paying, through other things that have to be there. So this is where the big compression is going to happen is whether advisors are able to continue to not just add value, but deliver value beyond portfolio management for their clients that the clients actually know and appreciate. Mm-hmm. All right. I got one more question for you, and it's 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 intentionally open-ended. Um, what do you see as the future of the custody business, considering that it's it's effectively a commodity and these custodians are all competing on all the other services that they offer, the practice management services and so forth. So where do, where do you go in the custody space if you want to get a leg up? The, the custody business is a commodity to an extent, but it's also uh, necessary. It's as if you were a public company, you always require an audit. And, uh, and so the question is, what type of auditing firm are you going to go to and which ones do your investors consider to be important? So the same is true in the advisory business is that the custodian has a role to play. Uh, I think the custodial business has probably struggled a little bit because they don't have the same leverage that they used to uh, with so many comp- competitors of the marketplace. And so the, the, the same challenge exists for custodians that does for advisors is how do they deliver value beyond record keeping and reporting? And how do they do this in a way that it becomes a term of endearment rather than a term of entrapment? And, uh, and so just having that relationship uh, is not going to be sufficient. There has to be ways in which they create a deeper linkage to what the advisor is trying to do and how the clients say, it's important that I keep my assets at Pershing or at Schwab or at Fidelity because I trust them, I know them, and the quality of the service that I get ultimately uh, means something to me. Okay. Bruce, anything else for uh, Mark? 
No, that's uh, that's it for me. Just to say thank you, Mark. Thank you both. Thank you for being here, and uh, I, I'm I'm going to apologize on behalf of my my Detroit Lions for knocking your Packers out of the playoffs this year. <laughs> hey, you know, actually, I'm a Seahawks fan, so I'm kind of thrilled by it all. Oh, you, I forgot you're out there now. Okay, well, still, I'm going to tie you to the Packers, so there you have it. <laughs> all right. Talk to you later. All right. Thanks, Mark. Launching every Monday, that was another episode of the Investment News Podcast. We want to thank our special guest, uh, industry veteran and uh, all-around great guy, Mark Bergen. We also want to thank our producer, Angelica Hester, and our sponsor this week, LPL Financial. Uh, You can find the Investment News Podcast at investmentnews.com, as well as all the other places you get your podcasts, Apple, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher. Leave us a review on Apple. Please follow us on Spotify. Uh, if you're still on Twitter, reach out to Jeff. Um, his handle is at Benji Ryder. Mine is at BD News Guy. Stay tuned because we'll be talking to you next week.